Turn with me to Mark 2. I want to read right off today. Normally I say a few comments and then read. But let me just begin immediately. Let the story speak for itself out of Mark chapter number 2. And then we'll take some time and discuss it together. Mark 2 verse number 1. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. Notice they didn't even say it. He knew what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. Now, I want you to listen to this verse. I just read all that out of the New Living Translation, but I want you to hear the first verse out of the New King James Version. It says this, again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he, Jesus, was in the house. Jesus was in the house. That that phrase has been ringing in my ear since I was a teenager. Jesus is in the house. I uh, went on my first missions trip uh, right after I'd come to Jesus as a teenager. Uh, I, I received information about a trip that youth could go on, students could go on, uh, an international missions trip. This particular trip, they take them all over the world. It was called AIM, Ambassadors in Mission. It was a trip. The youth director in our area was Cecil Colbreth. He led all of the AIM trips and and they were taking a team over the course of our winter break to uh, a big uh, metropolitan city in Mexico where we would serve the urban poor. Uh, I signed up to go on that trip. I hadn't been saved, but a few months, I already felt the call on my life. And, and we were serving in the slums and in the garbage heaps where people lived. I saw poverty like I had never seen in my life, children playing in open sewer as if it was a normal day. Uh, and yet I saw this incredible spiritual hunger that I had never, uh, literally, I was turned inside out for the first time as an American kid, even a kid who grew up in a humble setting. Uh, I, I, I was in a place where I realized I was wealthy compared to all these people, and it, it wrecked me um, in those moments. But the services were set up like this. All of us teenagers would go out into the neighborhoods, and we would knock on doors Uh, And we would invite people to services at night in what was the Church of the Good Shepherd. That was the name of the church, the Church of the Good Shepherd. And we would invite people to church. And Cecil, our youth leader, would preach at night through an interpreter. So it was the first time in my life I had ever heard a message spoken in English and translated into another language. This was all new experience for me. And so we would go, and I was thinking, why would anybody want to open the door when a 17, 16, 17-year-old kid shows up, knocks on their door, you got all these faces coming to their strange 
And then I realized about the fourth house as they giggled and laughed because we all learned enough Spanish. Uh, and here we are. I'm a redneck from Arkansas saying, Somos de la Iglesia. Uh, that means we are from the church, you know, knocking on the door. And they're just laughing. And they're so curious. What, the way I'm saying it, they got to listen to the end. And then um, I butcher it in my, my southern draw. And you would be amazed at how many people actually responded to the invitation. And so every night the crowds grew. People were giving their lives to Christ. We were seeing some people testify of God healing, doing some incredible miracles. The last night, um, brother, we called him Brother C. Cecil uh, preached a message from Mark chapter number 2. And uh, his message was, Jesus is in the house. That was the title of his message. And all night long, he would say, Jesus is in the house. And the translator would say, Jesus esta en la casa. And it was so much all night in the middle of that, it, my senses were on overload. For whatever reason, those phrases have never left my head. For 30 years almost, I've been hearing in my head, Jesus is in the house. Jesus es en la casa. I, I just keep hearing it. And so for, 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 for years, anytime I would be in a service, where God was doing something unique, spectacular, and you could just sense the overwhelming nature of his presence, somebody would say, how was church? I would say, Jesus esta en la casa. Jesus is in the house. I mean, that was just became the descriptor for me because of that experience. A couple years later, Haley and I married. We weren't quite 20. We were young uh, teenagers, got married, and we were asked to lead. We were already working in ministry, so we were asked to lead um, uh, be student leaders on this particular trip. So I preached some during this week, another city, but same scenario, serving the urban poor, going out into the streets, compelling them to come, holding this services. And so I'm preaching some, Brother C is preaching some. We get to the last night, I guess it's his, I mean, his message. He got up, turned with me to Mark chapter number two, Jesus esta en la casa. I mean, here we go again. Same experience, same results. They had warned us on the last night um, that the, the, the culture there, that as we got ready to leave, the people would want to honor us. And so they would bring us gifts. And they, they said some of the gifts will be things they've collected out of the dump and they've made art out of them. But when they give them to you, no matter how insignificant it looks, it is the most valuable thing they have. So you take that gift and you treasure it like somebody just gave you a key to the golden Fort Knox. And so we get, sure enough, at the end, the local pastor pulls us up, people that had come to Christ that week, people that have been a part of the church forever, they come and start putting, putting gifts in our hands, saying, thank you for coming. And Haley and I are standing there as a young married couple, we're newlyweds, we're standing there, uh, I preach, so I've had a little more visibility than I had in previous trips, and a lady comes to us with an infant, it's obvious that the infant is sick, and the lady places the infant in Haley's arms, and so we just assume she wants us to pray. And so we pray, and while we're praying, I'm getting this weird feeling that this is not just she wants us to pray for this baby. And then as she turns in devastation to walk away, leaving the baby in Haley's arms, I'm, help, Brother C, uh, we're supposed to honor these gifts, but I don't think this is what you meant. Uh, the, I can't tell you, as a young young man called ministry, a young wife, newlyweds, the mix of emotions that were going on in our heart at this time because we're, 
we know in our heads this baby is not going to get the medical care it needs and this mom loves this baby so much that she says, if I give them to you, they have a better chance of living than if they stay with me. And so she's willing to let it go. And then yet I'm standing here, how could a mom give up? I'm just in the mix of all of these crazy emotions. I felt wrecked and rewarded all at the same time and I couldn't explain it. The pastor, the missionary, um, Brother Colbert, Brother C, all came together and prayed with us and her and her baby and they took over. Obviously, we couldn't take the baby, but just that experience and those moments just marked me, both of those trips. The people, the poverty, their hunger for God, their gratitude towards us, the impact of global kingdom mission, and then that phrase that has never left my mind, Jesus esta in la casa, seeing what really happens when Jesus is really in the house and what he does in people's lives. I knew in those moments, I would be branded, and I can tell you as from a teenage kid now at 45, I have never been the same because of those moments. It marked me, and it's one of the reasons that I am so emphatic about God's presence. I am so, I always tell you, we're people of the presence, and let's worship in such a way that his presence comes. Let's roll out the red carpet. Let's make room for God's presence in our life. Let's make room for God's presence in this church, because when God's tangibly present among his people, anything can happen. That's the reason this whole year's theme is the word here, because we believe that the presence of Jesus, the manifest presence of God is in this house, that we have his attention, that this is a season where God has turned his face our direction, a season of nearness, a season of access, a season of life change and supernatural transformation, a time when God has chosen to dwell uniquely among his people. That's the reason I can't wait to get to church every weekend because I have the expectancy that when God's people get in God's house, in God's presence, anything is possible. There's this genuine excitement in me when I drive onto this campus, God, what are you going to do today? What are you going to do in this service? What's going to happen? What stories are going to come out of the environment this weekend? Who is going to have their eternal story completely rewritten, go from death to life? Who, whose miracle, whose marriage is going to be restored? I have this expectancy that something supernatural is going to happen. But some of us are stuck in the rut of looking for the supernormal. We approach church like church is our court-ordered support group, and we check in and check out without any expectations whatsoever. Listen, if, 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 I, if I, I wouldn't be wasting my time as a pastor of this local church, or I wouldn't be encouraging you to waste your time as a Christ follower if I didn't believe that walking in here on a regular basis that there was some supernatural potential in your life, in my life, in all of our lives every time we get together. And so let me just share with you some of those examples of what's going on when we get together. And and let me just warn you a little bit or maybe... Some of you may wrongly assume when I tell these stories that I am chasing after some supernatural sign. And that is absolutely not the case because this is what I believe. The spiritually immature chase signs. The spiritually mature chase Jesus. The spiritually mature know that Jesus is enough. They also know that when Jesus is in the house, so is the Savior and the healer and the deliverer and the way maker. All we need is Jesus. And there is a ripple effect of the presence of Jesus being in the house because Jesus is enough. 
Scripture says in Mark chapter 16 that signs and wonders will follow those that believe in Jesus. Not the other way around. It's not people that believe in Jesus chasing after signs and wonders. We don't need to chase signs. We simply need to chase Jesus. But when Jesus is present, anything is possible. Let me just introduce you to a story. A guy by the name of Sabas Flores. Sabas may be in this room today. I don't know which service he came to today. But three weeks ago, Sabas came forward for prayer at the end of one of our services with the prayer team. He had a severe pain in his neck, enough that it led him to the doctor where they found a a very abnormally large cyst in his neck. He was sent to a specialist for a biopsy. The appointment was on a Monday. So on that Sunday before the appointment, he comes forward for prayer after the service, and there was a genuine sense. They agreed in faith, and there was this genuine sense that God was at work in Sabas's life. The next day, he goes to the doctor's appointment, and the tech uh, that is doing uh, the uh, going to do the sonogram and all that starts filling around to locate the cyst in order to be able to get it all zeroed in like it's supposed to be. And she was having a hard trouble, hard time finding the cyst, and and as she struggled to find it, Sabas just said, "I think God touched me." And she said, well, it's common. Sometimes you just can't find them. And so she went on with the test. And she started the sonogram. And and it got quiet in the room. And she's looking. And all of a sudden, she pierces the silence with, wow, wow, wow. And then Sabas, you got to know Sabas. He has an electric personality. And I can just hear him saying, what, what, what? Because it scared him. He said it scared him when she just started yelling, wow. And he's like, what are you seeing? And she said, well, that's it. I'm seeing absolutely nothing. And so she called the doctor back in, and the doctor starts looking at the test. They run the test three times, uh, and the doctor just said, I guess it's a miracle. It's gone. It was here last week, and it's not here now. And I would say, Jesus is in the house. Jesus esta en la casa. I want to read you an email a man in the church sent to me, and he asked to be kept nameless in this. He's been, I know his journey, and some of you will know the story. He's been battling um, pancreatic and liver cancer, stage four, since 2016. And the life expectancy they gave him then was weeks to months. And here, years later, he is defying all of the reports and the odds. And he said this, thank you, Pastor Brian, for being my pastor. I'm so grateful for you. And North Place Church. The Bible says we should share all good things with our teachers. So here is a scan of my liver, September 2017. Everything in bright white is cancer. And then he said, here is the most recent scan from February 2019. This represents an 80 to 90% reduction in the cancer cells in my liver. The Lord gave me two verses when I started this journey in October of 2016. Psalm 118 and 17. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. In Isaiah 41.10. Fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He goes on to say, when I was too physically weak or emotionally weak or spiritually weak to pray for myself, my friends would pray for me, virtually placing one of these verses in each hand, one in my right hand, one in my left hand. They would hold my hands up for me as we pray. This is how this battle has been waged. And he says, this is the work of the Lord and I declare it. Please feel free to share my story and these images as you deem appropriate. My only request is that you leave my name anonymous so that the glory of the Lord is the only thing that remains. Your servant in Christ, 
and he left his name. Jesus is in the house. Jesus este en la casa. I'm going to get the accent down if I keep saying that. And I want you to meet Andal. Andal is a uh, brother who just recently came to Christ. I'm sorry for the, the grainy photo. This came from one of our staff members at our campus in Durban, South Africa, that just celebrated its one-year anniversary. And over the last few months, Andal is the brother on the far right who has come to Christ. And uh, uh, is, you see some of the young boys, they come from his township. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. But we can't see it because it's grainy. They weren't able to get me a high-quality image. Uh, but the blue shirts on the end and the red shirt in the middle are all North Place t-shirts, which tells you we have taken our crazy infatuation for t-shirts and spread it to the African continent. It has gr- grown. It has picked up well. Um, Andal is the gentleman on the far right, and uh, he has an incredible story of, of life change. And he was brought to North Place by a friend who had been recently changed by Jesus. And I think that's an important point to make because friends don't let friends die without Jesus. That's a whole other sermon, but it's, it's a good point. Soon after one of his earlier visits to our campus in Durban, he came to one of the staff members after the service with something in his clenched fist. And he, he opened what was in his hand into their hand and out dropped a woven bracelet. And he said, this is what we in our Zulu culture wear when we worship ancestors. But as of today, I will no longer be worshiping my ancestors. I will only worship Jesus now. Andal faithfully attends church every week and has become an advocate for fatherless young boys in his poor township. And he's seriously considering going to Bible school to become a pastor, trying to something stirring in his heart. He sent the staff at our Durban campus this message right before their one-year anniversary celebration a few weeks ago, and these are his own words. This is my present to North Place Church. It's not a material gift, but it is the best gift I can give you. Before, I felt the ache and pain of being poor and being nothing at all to everyone. I felt rejected, which led me to live a life driven by approval, guilt, resentment, fear, materialism, and shame. I discovered the verse, Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. And it spoke to me. That same day, I set my foot at North Place Church and heard Pastor Randy, our campus pastor there in Durban. I heard Pastor Randy preaching. My hurts were cleansed as I listened to his message on Acts 4. Since that day, I told myself that I'm not ever going back to that life again. From Sabas to our anonymous brother defeating cancer to Andal. And I would say from Dallas to Durban and anywhere in between where Jesus is Lord and his people in covenant relationship with him gather to call upon his name, whether it's a coffee shop or a living room or this church where his name is glorified, Jesus is in the house and anything can happen. Now let me take you back to Mark chapter 2. And I want to walk through it. I'm going to walk through it quickly today, but not as points. And it's not point one of the sermon, not point two. I'm going to walk through Mark 2, Mark two more like a narrative. I want to tell a story because I want, to, I want you to put yourself in the story and I want you to feel it and experience what is going on in this story of one of Jesus' great miracles. If you go back, it, you'll find out this is a story about four friends 
who are doing whatever it takes to get their friend they care about to Jesus. They have a friend that is in desperate need and his only hope is Jesus and they're going to do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. That is the plot of the story. And to get the context of the story, it's in Mark 2. But if you go back and read Mark chapter number 1, you realize that by the time this miracle happens in Jesus' life, his popularity is already spread. There's already large crowds gathering to hear him teach. Um, he's already gained, really, a celebrity status, which he fought. He did not want. Matter of fact, he would perform a miracle, and he would say to them, don't tell anybody, and yet they would, do, they would tell everybody. And so everywhere he went, the crowds got bigger and bigger and bigger. So he had this unwanted celebrity status following him everywhere he went. People wanted to see him. They wanted to hear him. The sick craved his healing touch. And that's why when he goes back to Capernaum, back home, he's in a house with standing room only crowd. It's wall-to-wall people inside. It's overflowing to the street outside, jam-packed. People are pressed up against each other. It's a hot, arid type of a climate, dusty. So imagine the body heat, the smell of sweat, a big crowd in a small, hot place. Houses like this were not made for crowds like that. And most scholars believe that the house he was in in Capernaum would have been Peter's house. And if that's the case, it would have been a working man's house. It would not have been a mansion. It would have been square. It would have been made out of clay. And it would have been incredibly small. And as was the custom of the day in those clay houses, they were packed together in these neighborhoods very close there would have been an exterior set of stairs on the outside wall that would have gone gone up to a flat roof so that in the heat of the day as the sun began to set and it's hot inside in the afternoons of that clay house, they would be able to go up to the roof where they would have some kind of linen shelter where the wind would blow through and they could sit on their roof and get some reprieve from the heat. Inside the house, Jesus was sitting there and the big shots, the teachers of religious law, the Pharisee types, had already come in and they'd gotten the best seats. They wanted to hear Jesus for themselves. They wanted to determine whether or not he was the real deal or if he was a heretic. And because they were important, they had the best seats. For everybody else, it was just every man for himself. Just squeeze in wherever you can to the point that even the door going to the outside was blocked with a mass of humanity. So anybody that showed up was lucky just to find a place to stand and see. And sometimes they were just standing in the back so that they couldn't see. All they could do was hear. But sure enough, there are five guys that come late to the party. Four men that are carrying their paralyzed friend on a stretcher, a kind of a makeshift gurney. Each friend is on a corner carrying what is known in the Bible as the paralytic, trying to stay in step with one another. It had to be a bumpy ride for the paralyzed guy. And for all we know, he was asking them to just take him back home. But they were determined to give their friend to Jesus. And I can feel in my heart as I engage the story, when they turn the corner in that cram-packed neighborhood of all these clay houses and they look down this dirt road at the house that Jesus was rumored to be staying at and the crowd has now spilled out into the street, I can sense the disappointment in their heart when they realize they're not going to be able to get their friend into the house. And they stop right in their tracks. And one of them says, what are we going to do now? And the paralytic strains to raise his head up off the gurney to see what they're seeing. And when he sees the crowd, he says, come on, guys, I told you, this is a waste of time. Just take me back home. 
One of the other guys says, there's got to be a way in. We didn't carry you this far when we heard that he was here to turn around now and give up. The other one said, well, maybe they'll just let us through. Come on, it's worth a try. And so they start going towards the crowd, each step a little heavier and harder than the one before it. And they make their way to the edge of the outside of the gathered crowd. And they start saying, excuse me, coming through, coming through. And there's a man leading on a cane in the crowd and says, you're not coming through here. And a blind man beside him says, no, you're not coming through here. You're going to have to wait in line just like the rest of us have been waiting in line. So they step back to the edge of the crowd and lay their paralyzed friend down on the ground while they try to consider what their options are. And he says to them again, come on, guys, just just take me home. It's not worth it. We're never going to get through that crowd. And one of the friends says, I have an idea. Those outside steps that go along the exterior wall, they take up to the roof. Maybe we can just drop you through the roof and put you at the feet of Jesus. And one of the others pipes up and says, are you crazy? We're just going to destroy the roof of some stranger's house? But the man was committed to his idea. He said, look, we have come this far. We're not going to give up. And if we can get him to the roof and dig a hole in the roof, we can pay to fix the man's roof. But our friend needs Jesus, and the only hope we have in his life is Jesus. So they push through the crowd. They step on a few toes. They shove a few people aside. They make it to the steps. I have some idea what it was like carrying him up those steps to that roof because I've carried enough couches and and dressers up to a second floor. And I know the guys on the top end have to lower the weight to balance it while the guys on the bottom end, if you ever do it, get on the top end. The guys on the bottom end have to hold it up uh, while it's even. So it gets up there. You balance the weight. But it wasn't just tough on the guys carrying. It was, it, just imagine uh, the, the, the level of embarrassment here for the paralytic. He was already a spectacle by the virtue of his condition. And I imagine he's somewhat embarrassed in this moment and worried that If they don't balance in him right, they will spill him out of the gurney, roll him off of the edge. But they make it to the top, huffing and puffing, and they start digging. And that may seem odd. The Bible even says they dug. And why would they start digging? Because the top of the house was clay roof. So they would have had to break up the clay coating. And underneath that level of clay coating would have been straw and brushwood and branches as insulation and clay on the bottom. So they stuff, literally, between three foot between the beams, as they get all the clay out of the way, they stuff their friend, lower him down hand over hand on his gurney to the feet of Jesus. Now, there's no way that it didn't get the attention of everyone in that house. First, just imagine, Jesus is already preaching, the Bible says, and he stops to catch a breath, and they hear the roof being ripped open. And then debris starts falling, dust and brush and clay, and they start trying to get out of the way. There's not a lot of room to press. They're all pressed in there really close together, and all of a sudden there's a burst of light that comes through the hole, and there's all this dust in the air and a silhouette of this paralyzed man being lowered down. So as everybody's looking, three or four of the guys reach up and catch him on the underside and start lowering him gently to the floor and lay him at the feet of Jesus. And then everyone in the house, including Jesus, looks up and sees four proud grinning faces at the top of that house staring down through that hole. You know what they were looking at? They were looking at desperation. That's what desperation looks like. 
That's what real belief looks like. That's what faith looks like. That's what it looks like when friends actually believe that Jesus is the answer to the ones they love. If you look at the story of God, desperation has always captured his heart. Always. When you see people crying out to him in desperation, you always see it turn his attention and his heart in that direction. Because Jesus has never measured faith by its orthodoxy, but by its desperation, determination, courage, and persistence. And the unorthodox faith of these four men captured his heart, impressed him to the point that he looks down on the floor and says to the paralyzed man without hesitation, son, Your sins are forgiven you. Now, we hear that. We understand the eternal ramifications of that, the incredible joy of salvation that comes from being cleansed by God's grace. But you have to imagine the emotions that were elicited in that room when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. First of all, it made the religious leaders angry because who is this man thinking he has the right to forgive anybody's sins? you got to be God in order to forgive people's sins. And in order for you to claim to be God would be blasphemy. So they're already trying to build their case against Jesus, which would ultimately lead to his crucifixion. So it angered the religious leaders. It disappointed the four friends. I mean, can you imagine what was going on in their heart when the first thing Jesus says to their friend, your sins are forgiving you. They're they're saying, we didn't come all this way, drag him all this far, lug him up on top of this house, tear a hole in a stranger's roof, and drop him at your feet for you to announce his sins are forgiven. We brought him to you to heal his body. I mean, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Imagine you fall off a ladder. You break your leg, you're in excruciating pain, friends scoop you up, carry you to the ER, you wait forever patiently in line to get to the doctor, they can't give you any medicine for pain until the doctor sees you, you're in excruciating pain, you finally get back to the doctor thinking you're going to get some relief, the doctor comes in, looks you over, smiles at your friends and says, son, your sins are forgiven you, you are now discharged. That's not what you were looking for. It's the same type of situation these men find themselves in. But the actions of Jesus in this moment is preaching a very profound message to us about the heart of God and about the gospel. He is revealing priority. Because the greatest and most powerful miracle that God will ever perform on this earth is the salvation of a soul transforming a person by his grace from darkness to light, bringing someone from spiritual death to spiritual life is the greatest miracle you will ever witness in your life. So before he ever started with the paralyzed situation, he started with the greatest epidemic of this man's life. He could be healed from his paralysis and not cleansed of his sin and spend an eternity without God. So first things first, your sins be forgiven you. The religious leaders knew what Jesus was claiming when he made that statement. He was claiming to be God. This was a divinity claim. So he took the challenge they were thinking in their minds and exposed them. And he said to them, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? So he decides to say both. And in doing so, he shows grace to the man and proves his divinity to the doubters. 
And immediately upon his command, the twisted pretzel of a man begins to straighten up like a soldier at attention. And he grabs his mat, marches out of the house in full view of everybody that had gathered there and flowed out into the streets. And the same crowd that wouldn't make a way for him to get in the house when he was paralyzed all of a sudden parted like the Red Sea to make a path for him to get out. And his four pals on top of the roof are high-fiving each other, shaking their heads in amazement, looking through that hole, astounded at the miracle-working power of this man named Jesus from Nazareth. And they are amazed at this man, their friend, who has just walked out of this building. And one of them says, I knew if we could just get him to Jesus, it would change everything. And then I imagine there's another friend. Every one of us has a friend like this that would say, I'm just glad we don't have to carry him home. We've all, we've all got that friend that misses the whole point of the miracle. I'm just glad we don't have to carry him home. These guys had so much belief in Jesus and so much love for their friend, they didn't remain passive. They removed obstacles and they did whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. Can I just say this? It's the reason why we are adding services. It's the reason why we're planning campuses. It's the reason why we're expanding our vision. It's the why we give generously and serve willingly because we are convinced that Jesus is in the house, that there is something in the air, that God is doing something, that it's like a, 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 an apple on a tree, a, a grape on the vine. If we don't get it while we can, it'll rot there. It'll ruin there. We're going to miss our moment. We believe this is the year of here, that God is among his people, and we sense that if we can just get our friends to Jesus, anything is possible. I had a teenage kid come to me after the last service. He said, Pastor, my, my friend is so intellectual, and when I invite him to church he wants to argue and I said well just say this say man come on I will leave you alone I'll leave you alone if you'll just come set through an entire service I'll tell you why because the presence of God can unwrap more of his intellectual arguments in one encounter with the presence of God by just being in the presence of God just get him in the presence of God just get him in the house and tell him I'll leave you alone but just you got 75 minutes. Just sit through worship, sit through preaching, sit one time, and just see what you never know what God will do. When Jesus is in the house, anything is possible. Let me challenge you personally. This Easter season is probably the most spiritually fertile window on our calendar as Americans. It's the most spiritually fertile season of our year in this culture. I wish it wasn't that way. I wish there wasn't times in our year where the people that are going to tell you no are more likely to say yes, but for whatever reason, in our culture, at Easter and at Christmas, people are more inclined to attend a religious service. Um, And I would say in our culture, they're more inclined, our experience, they're more inclined at Easter, even more so than at Christmas. And so our culture has given us a gift. I used to fight it, but I don't don't even fight it anymore. The ground is fertile. There are more, let's just seize the opportunity take advantage of the opportunity. Our culture has given us a gift. And below that, there's something unique going on in our church where God is engaging people's hearts and supernaturally changing our lives. So whatever the reason, people are more likely to say yes to your invitation right now than in any other time of the year. So we need in us what those four friends in Mark 2 had in them, a desperate and determined faith that says, If I can just get my friends into the presence of God, if I can just get my friends to Jesus, 
anything is possible. This story of this man, the paralytic that was healed, lowered through the roof, is actually told in three gospels. Matthew tells it, Mark tells it, and Luke tells it. You go back and read it in all three places. It's obvious in all three gospel writers that they're trying to emphasize to us the faith of the four friends, that their faith and their desperation had as much impact on this miracle as the paralytic himself. It was their faith, their passion, their desperation. And I'm going to tell you, some of your friends need Jesus and they don't even know it. They don't have the faith to believe it. They're so warped by sin, unbelief, ignorance. I don't know what it is that is blinding them, but there are many of us in our lives that have people in our circle of influence that are incapacitated, not physically, paralyzed spiritually by fear, by shame, by regret, maybe by ignorance. They don't know what they don't know. They don't know what God has to offer them. And it's going to take the determined and desperate faith of four friends like that that are willing to do whatever it takes to get those kind of people to Jesus because those people in your life are never going to come on their own. They're they're not going to make that choice on their own. It is going to take the gentle, consistent, loving nudges in your life, showing them, loving them, and serving them. Before I became a pastor, I, I was an itinerant ministry, which means I traveled. I didn't pastor a certain local church. I and and, and I don't I, I'm hesitant to even say this because the scale was so insignificant compared to Billy Graham but you know what Billy Graham did on a much larger scale he would he would um, have these massive coliseums and weeks and months in advance would prepare them and fill them with 50,000 people and preach the gospel I did smaller events more often in civic centers or local churches and and I would preach the gospel people would bring their friends and so I learned a lot in the early days from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association And if you've ever been a part of a Graham crusade, you will know that prior to the crusade in one of the big football stadiums, they will have Operation Andrew, where they pull together all the local churches and they encourage the local churches to be Andrew. Andrew is in John 1. He found Jesus and was so excited about what he found that he goes and tells all of his friends, brings his brother Simon, who became the apostle Peter, to Jesus. Simon uh, met Jesus because of Andrew's passion. And so Operation Andrew is where they encourage believers, bring your friends to the crusade. And then Billy Graham gets up and preaches an incredible message. I, I heard Billy Graham one time encourage people at a pre, pre-event. It was before the night of the event. And he, he said to all of us these three things. And I, I never forgotten them. He's in heaven today. But this is what he encouraged us as we were getting ready for that event. He said, number one, everyone will spend eternity somewhere. One day, someone will thank you for not giving up on them. And then he said, two, don't answer no for them. Because you just assume they're going to say no, so you don't even ask. And you let your silence become their answer. So don't you be the no answer for them. And then he followed it with this. We are accountable for the ask, but not responsible for the answer. It is our job to go and give opportunity and God's job to do the convicting and the saving. But it, we're responsible for the ask, not for the answer. God's responsible for the answer. They're responsible for the answer. But just make sure you don't be the no for them because they didn't have a chance. Pastor Taylor, I'm going to ask if you'll help me for a moment. Every Easter... Uh, before we get into Easter weekend, a couple weeks, two or three weeks before, we always try to put something in your hands. We call it a conversation piece. For some of you, this doesn't help at all. For me, it does. And I know based on your comments, it has helped a lot of you in the past. As you have people in your office or your neighborhood or people you love and care that you want to invite to have some kind of touch point conversation piece, 
When you came into the building today, you probably noticed the vase out front. I'm, I'm an Arkansas kid on a farm. I say vase, not vase. Um, so it's a vase to me. There is a, and if you, I have a doctorate, so I can say vase. Um, so it is a, it is a replica of a piece of kintsugi art, which is an ancient oriental Japanese art form. And basically the whole heart behind kintsugi art is that it takes things like this, this ceramic or porcelain piece that I have in my hand that has been broken and shattered and basically become worthless. And the artist will then take all of the fragments of that piece, a porcelain or ceramic, and will rebuild it small fragment by small fragment using pure 24 karat gold as the mortar. And the whole message is at the end of it, what was broken and invaluable has now become more valuable after it's been broken than it ever was before it was shattered. That's the message of Kintsugi art. It is beautifully broken. And so that whole concept of our Easter weekend message that will launch a series is kind of embodied in that Kintsugi piece of art sitting out there in the lobby. And so inside this little gold bag, we put a small invite that explains what Kintsugi is on the back, all of the invitation to our services and the times on the front. It says the black vase represents our brokenness, our shame, our past. It's the reason why Jesus died on the cross. The gold bag represents our restoration and our newfound value. It is because Jesus rose again that our future looks brighter than our past. We invite you to join us this Easter weekend to discover the beauty in our brokenness. We had um, a couple thousand of these made up. So it means there's one for every family to take one of these um, because I know that there are, which means you're going to need to be strategic and pray about who you give it to. But I realize there are going to be a lot of families in the church that don't utilize it. That means if you've got two people burning on your heart that you want to have this conversation with, take two of them. It's okay. Take two of them. We're going to be praying in our staff meetings over these things that they will sovereignly find their way into the hands of the people and guide you into the right conversations because God is already working preemptively on people's hearts. Thousands are going to gather. Hundreds are going to come to Christ. And I want you to have the same smile on your face as the four friends that ripped the hole in the roof. Because you watch Jesus transform the lives of people you care about. Because you weren't passive. You remove obstacles. You did whatever it took to get people you care about to Jesus. I always tell you this. All you got to do is invest, invite, and include. That's what you do. Make an investment in somebody's life. Invite them to church and include them in your life. Take them to dinner. Do something to add value to their life. Invest, invite, include. These will be on high top tables like this out in the lobby when you leave. We tried to get them far enough away from the exits. They didn't create a log jam. They're all the same. Just grab one or two, whatever you need, and use them. We're praying over them and you over the next couple days. Just one last story. Give me 30 seconds. I want you to meet. I'm going to butcher her name, but it's Zulu name. Ntokazo. Her picture's on the screen. She's the one in the middle. Uh, the two on the side, the McCabe's, are a part of our team in Durban, a part of the staff there. And Tokozo is in the middle. Um, she found Christ when we launched our campus. And uh, the McCabe's sent me this email. Again, grainy photo. It wasn't a high-resolution photo. But Tokozo has invited more people to church in the last year than anybody. Matter of fact, there are 30 people that are now a part of the core in that church that were all guests of Tokozo who come to Jesus and become a part of North Place, Durban. And here's her story in her own words. 
God has changed my life in many ways since I began coming to North Place Church. First, I was not working, but God gave me a job. This, is, this job is where I met McCabe's and came to North Place Church. When Pastor Randy thought, taught what the Bible says about finances, I learned to tithe and budget my money, and that helped me get out of debt. I've learned to trust in God alone and not material things. Even though I do not have much, God continues to provide what I need and bless me. Also, through being a part of praying at intercessory prayer meetings on Wednesday mornings, I have seen my two sons' lives change to become more stable, and they are making good choices. I've also seen my extended family change for the better, as there's now peace in my house and in my relationships. Lastly, through the North Place Women's Bible Study, I'm learning to read the Bible for myself, which I've never done before. I'm learning how to be free from the sin and bondage of my past. And then in Zulu... She says, God is good. And I look at that. Man, I just want to be able to say that. It is just so cool to look at. Here, I'm going to even try. I don't even know if I said it right, but the Lord knows my heart. Uh, God is good. God is great. And I'm going to join with Ntokazo and say, Jesus is in the house. Jesus está en la casa. And guess who brought Andal to church? Ntokazo. Because friends don't let friends die without Jesus. Would you stand with me all over this place today, prayer team? Would you make yourself available today? I want to pray over you and conclude this service today. Speak a blessing over your life. But as the prayer team makes themselves available this morning, it would be a shame if I didn't give you the opportunity to come and pray for your own miracle. If Jesus is in the house then bring your relational need, your physical need, your financial need to Jesus today. And let's trust and believe that the same Jesus that was in that house or here or three weeks ago for Sabas, that same Jesus is in this house today. And maybe you're in a place where you need to step across the line of faith. You've been seeking, maybe a shame, fear, whatever has kept you from just going all in. The greatest story, the greatest word, the greatest miracle that could ever happen is in this moment when you say, Jesus, I surrender. And he says to you, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. It's the greatest miracle. And you can do that right in your seat, surrender your life, confess him as Lord, ask him to forgive you of your sin. But the Bible says if you confess him before men, he will confess you before his father which is in heaven. But if you're ashamed of him before men, He'll be ashamed of you. So one of the coolest things we ever do here is we get to be the people at the front of this building when folks say, I'm ready. I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. And you make that public profession to them. I'm going all in. And the Father says to you, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven you. And you walk out of here with a completely new life and a completely new eternity. And that can happen to you today. The greatest miracle ever. And so we're going to open these altars, whatever you need. Jesus está en la casa today. So, Father, will you bless them and keep them? Would you make your face shine down upon them? Would you be gracious to them? Turn your countenance their direction today and give them peace. And God, would you make every one of our lives different because of your word and your presence? We expect the supernatural, and when you do it in this room today, as people surrender their lives to you, In Jesus' name, amen.